1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 8 through 15. Please follow along with me as I read out loud. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title this morning is Men and Women in the Church. And I can tell you that after a week of perhaps more intense study on this passage, I still come to it with a different degree of trembling as it comes to the matter of us looking at what Paul is saying to the Ephesians church through his sidekick, Timothy, how this is also the eternal word of God that we must obey and follow today and recognize our cultural limitations and our cultural misinterpretations, what we come to is a very difficult text. Again, not difficult because God is unclear, or that God is chaotic in how he speaks to us, because of our limitations. So may we come this morning to this passage with perhaps an extra prayerfulness in our hearts and minds, that we might be open to receive what God's word has. But I've titled the passage Men and Women in the Church because he's not only talking about women. Although after reading that, I imagine you're thinking, wow, this is a lot of stuff about women. It's a lot to digest. It's a lot to consider. But our goal is going to be simple this morning. The importance of boys growing into men, girls growing into women. And the goal as children being to imitate what is seen, either good or bad. Our goal as adults, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, or just as fellow believers in Christ, is to set an example that models the way Paul taught in this very passage. So before we get into the specific role of men or women in the church, I want to ask you about your personal conduct as you come to a church gathering. Do you think much about that? I think perhaps today we think a lot about maybe just logistics. What am I going to wear? When are we going to leave? What do we need to bring? Like these kinds of things are what go through our minds on Sunday mornings. But what Paul is actually asking us to do in this passage is to consider three things. The first being our role as either men or women. The second being the order of teaching and authority in the church and how we are to respond to that. And then the last one being the foundation of all of that in creation and in the gospel. So that's how we've kind of broken up these three chunks of this passage this morning. Because there's something here for us 
beyond just kind of technically looking at historical context and all those kinds of things. There's a place and a time for that. Right now, the most important thing is that we hear God's word, receive it, believe it, and obey it. So let's start off in verses 8 through 10, the role of men and women in the church. I'm just going to read these verses again. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, when Paul opens up this part of his letter with, I desire then, he is actually connecting us very clearly to the previous discussion on public prayer and worship. He's continuing what will ultimately be um, the major theme in the book of 1 Timothy that we're going to find in the weeks ahead in chapter 3, verse 15, um, regarding how one ought to behave in the household of God. So with this, we can kind of sum up Paul's train of thinking in this way. First, as we saw in the beginning of our study, healthy churches have healthy teaching, right? Sound doctrine is a priority. And Paul commissioned Timothy to deal with those who would not teach in a, in a matter in line with sound doctrine, but would teach the doctrine of men or the doctrines that are contrary to God's word. So first of all, healthy churches have healthy teaching. Secondly, if there is healthy teaching, then there's a growing alignment in the people's hearts with the priority, the pleasure, and purpose of God in prayer. Not only in prayer, but also with local mission. So we saw last week. God calls us to pray, and Paul is bringing that charge up in the beginning of chapter 2 so that we might be in line with the heart of God, and that by that we might be on mission with him to call the lost to faith in Christ. And now, what Paul is bringing us to in verse 8 is the desired or the appropriate outcome of a church that emphasizes healthy teaching, that is growing in alignment with the heart of God, and now considering roles, authority, and the foundation and creation in the gospel. So let's start with the men. Seems like they have a short passage here, doesn't it? There's a lot more about women in this passage than there are about men. But what Paul has to say to men here specifically is extremely important. Because in the first part of our chapter... He was urging that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That the church be a a gathering of believers who pray, who seek the Lord's will in their lives and in the world around them. And then Paul brings up prayer again with men. Specifically, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, Lifting holy hands isn't exactly a command to say the only way you can pray is like this there are many different postures for prayer that the bible promotes kneeling down raising hands um, standing sitting uh, whatever you're doing right the emphasis is not on lifting up hands though culturally that would have been the main way that it was being done at the time the emphasis is on the matter of holiness and it helps us too as we look at the rest of the charge to men, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. See, Paul's charge to them would be that you don't come to church with 
balled up fists ready to express anger and to fight with others. But rather you come with open hands, with holy hands, devoted to God's purposes and not to your own. So in the first place, this becomes very applicable to us as men to consider on Sunday morning or any time before gathering with the church, we should ask ourselves, do I have holy hands as I come to the gathering this morning? Am I coming with anger in my heart? Am I ready for a fight? And it's, it's very appropriate that Paul mentions this with men because it is often the tendency of a man to be ready for a fight. To be ready to say, boy, nobody better cross me today because I am ready. I'm ready to fight. I'm just looking for a reason. Paul says you shouldn't be looking for a reason to fight. You should be looking for a way to express holiness and the peace of the gospel. Now, this is also important for us, too, because the inclination of a man particularly, and, and really you could say this of men and women, but he's speaking to men here, our inclination would be to have a focus on what we accomplish and what we do with our hands. A lot of our conversation involves, how was work this past week? I, I worked really hard. I had a lot of extra hours, and I accomplished this. I didn't accomplish this. I hope to accomplish this after church. Our accomplishments are a big focus of men-to-men small talk. And Paul says, rather than that being your focus, let prayer be your focus. Because in prayer, what we're doing is admitting our accomplishments are not enough. This is countercultural to us. It's countercultural to not be emphasizing what we've accomplished, but actually pleading to the Lord to accomplish his perfect will in our lives. So the church isn't a group designed for anger and quarreling. It's for holiness. It's for leadership, as we'll see later on in the letter. It's for these most important things of Christian living, of prayer and teaching and leading. So the picture of a godly man... And the role that they're to fulfill is one of holiness, devotion to the Lord in all of life, and prayer, dependence on him over their own efforts. So this is a distinction for the men in the household of God. Holy men pray. They think less of what they can accomplish from nine to five or in a certain 60 hours each week and more about what they can seek from their heavenly father at the throne of grace. So men, I would ask you in light of this passage, are you known for being like the world in this, in your emphasis on your accomplishments and your work? Or are you known to be like Christ, who even in his perfect humanity and divinity relied on his heavenly Father, prioritized prayer? We see multiple times in the gospel where Jesus would get up before the sun got up, and he would pray. He would go to a quiet place to be with his Father. Holy men in prayer. Then, in the same way, because we have this um, likewise here, so the goal is similar, but it's going to look different for women. So in the same way that anger and fighting should not be what we see when we look at men in the church, expensive clothes that match the latest trends shouldn't be the priority for women. We're not looking at a rule against dressing nicely, but probably more today, what would be like an obsession with having as many giant cups with a certain name on it, perhaps? You guys know the Stanley Cup obsession, right? It's more like that. 
Paul's charge to women is to say, don't let keeping up with trends be your adornment. Because that's what was going on here. He says again, likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. That doesn't mean uh, that there's, no, there's not to be any expression in the way women dress. But that the way they dress should be respectable with modesty and self-control. And he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. He's not saying that you can't necessarily even braid your hair or, or wear gold or pearls. I mean, we, we've even got in the Old Testament, the priests wore gold on their garments. We have in the book of Revelation, the picture of the church uh, pictured as a bride adorned for her husband. But the idea is to be set apart from the patterns of the world. And that's not to say that Christians need to always make sure they're a certain five or six steps behind the fashion trend. Although if you are, it's likely that that fashion trend will come back around anyway. The goal is modesty. It's okay to be contemporary. But modesty doesn't mean unfashionable or boring. But to, draw to not draw inappropriate attention to the body and self-control. Women are to be set apart from the world and local church as those who are not known for their appearances, but for the beauty of their character. So ladies, I would ask you this morning, are you known for being like the world or being like Christ in this? Men commit to holiness and prayer. Women commit to being known for God's work in and through you. These are the roles that Paul sets for us. They aren't exclusive but there's a uniqueness to each of these genders that emphasizes the effect of the gospel. And that's what we want to do. The gospel changes everything about our lives, doesn't it? It changes how we view the world. It changes how we interact with it. It changes our priorities and what we are to emphasize. And while the world is full of men who want to emphasize their own accomplishments and all that they're able to do, and it's full of women who would like to be known for being beautiful and up-to-date with the fashion trends and have a lot of Stanley Cups. Our goal is to be known for what Christ is doing in us more than just our appearances. Part of me would love to just end the sermon right there. <laughs> but we have to come to verses 11 and 12 at some point. Might as well do it today. Look at verse 11 with me again. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, if we look at this first phrase, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. In one sense, that's a call to everyone, right? Like particularly right now, my hope would be that you're learning and you're doing a good job of doing that quietly with all submissiveness. Nobody stood up and said anything about their Stanley Cups or nobody's, you know, disrupting anything. Quiet and submissive learning is something for the entire church. But there's a uniqueness in the role of women here, because there is an order of teaching and authority. Before we move too far into that, though, we should see that the first four words of verse 11 were completely revolutionary for their time. Not only their time, but really for all of world history in the Roman Empire. Women in the church, Paul says, are to be like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning not exclusively in the kitchen preparing as her sister Martha was, though that wasn't wrong for her to do. But the gospel actually invites men and women equally to come and learn together. 
And that is revolutionary. We tend to emphasize, man, quietly with all submissiveness, and no, they're not allowed to teach or exercise authority. Like, like, that's the emphasis. But if we start from the beginning and see that in the church, all are meant to be learning. We see a great grace there. So let's launch from that into this word quietly. Because the word quietly is not primarily about not speaking whatsoever. It's not as though at 10.30, if you are a woman, you are not to say a word until you get right back in your car and then you can talk, right? This word quietly is the same word as used in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, where Paul calls us to seek a quiet, to live a quiet and peaceful life. It's not a wordless life, but a peaceful and tranquil character that's unique among a world full of babbling and talking, right? And it's especially interesting for us today as we think about the fact that any one of us at any moment, even right now, could get on our phones and, and say something for the world to hear. Not, not only in typing, but you could make a video and post it. And, you know, speaking and teaching is a, it's a universal thing. And in our day and age, there's so many words being said. John Kitchen, who's a, um, currently a missionary, he was a pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance, in his commentary, he says that Paul is speaking against any contention, confusion, controversy, or self-assertion when he talks about women learning quietly in the church. Well, the second qualifier for this learning is with all submissiveness. Too, which is, yet, yet again, another challenging thing for us as we think about submission just in our culture in general is something that's really a bad word. It's not something that we emphasize positively. But Paul is calling it in a positive, calling us to it in a positive sense. Going along with quiet, quiet living, quiet learning, all submissiveness, ready to hear from God's word more than pronounce their own. But it's verse 12 that is probably where Bible readers have fumbled the most in our passage today throughout history. So when we come to verse 12, Paul is saying, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. One argument against what would be a basic reading of this, one argument says that based on an incorrect idea, it's based on an incorrect idea, that there was an unusual abuse of authority by women in social circles in Ephesus. And because there was um, worship at the Temple of Diana or Artemis, that women were kind of walking around with an air of superiority, and that they were in leadership both in the church and in social circles, um, but Paul is warning them to, to stop domineering or being like, aggressive and um, pot, like, very high on themselves in their leadership. Unfortunately for that argument, historical evidence, and even we can see in the book of Acts, that Ephesus was like the rest of the Roman Empire, where largely and generally men were holding authoritative and leadership positions. So that's one of the big arguments. A second one would be the argument for the biblical doctrine of equality. So if you go to Galatians 3.28, you see there where Paul is saying, that men and women are equal in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. And I've even had this verse thrown at me in this issue as well. Since Paul says that in Christ there's neither male nor female, then 
men and women are equal, and there's no limitations on who can do what in the life of the church. The problem with that is that contextually, that is in the book of Galatians, and particularly at that point, Paul is talking about the universal call and effect of the gospel. That there's no limitations based on what your race is or your gender or, or anything else like that. Anyone who is in Christ has an equal share of the salvation he's accomplished. You following with me so far? Good. All right. So Paul's not speaking about roles in Galatians 3.28. Because if he was, we'd have to conclude that Paul is actually arguing with himself between the book of Galatians and the book of 1 Timothy. And he's just simply not doing that. There's a difference between equality and the way those roles are expressed. There's a professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School who, quote, surveyed the scholarly articles in the standard reference tool, the New Testament Abstracts, which is just a scholarly journal, noted that it was only in 1969 that the progressive revisionist view began to appear in the literature of the academy. That is, that by 1969 was when you started to see people saying, you know, actually, it's probably fine that women really start holding these authoritative positions and that maybe we've under, misunderstood 1 Timothy 2 all this time. He concludes that the rise in this progressive interpretation and its promotion following the women's movement of the 1960s is indebted at, and at times probably culpably to the prevailing social climate rather than to biblical text. That is to say that the interpretation that says this was just for a certain place in Ephesus or any other interpretation really that would conflict with the traditional view, that that view is based on social climate rather than the biblical text, based on what's going on in society rather than what God has actually said. That's something we need to keep in mind here. As, as we interpret scripture, we don't want to interpret it falsely by fitting it into where we are in time and space and history. As far as the Greek in these words teach and exercise authority, um, Don Carson points out that in the Greek, these two words or two phrases are, are two separate things in the grammar. But practically, Carson says, they're one thing in the church. So perhaps the best understanding is to talk about authoritative teaching. That would be preaching ministry and the regular teaching life of the church. Um, R. Kent Hughes agrees here. So he says um, that the word teaching here is used to describe the careful and authoritative transmission of biblical truth. He says that in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, called the pastoral epistles, teaching always has the sense of authoritative, public Doctrinal instruction. That's the kind of teaching that is being prohibited here by Paul. So why is it that women can't hold authoritative teaching roles in the church? Is it because they can't teach? No. It's not because they're not able. Is it because boys rule and girls drool? No. It has to come down to what the word of God says. I read another article. I'd love to share it with you if you're curious. Um, from the website Desiring God, which is the ministry of John Piper and um, his church there. So an author named Mary Cassian, writing for that website, um, wrote this article on how women can interact in teaching in the church. And she says this, 
I think this is really helpful. Because she talks about how in the church life, men and women are to be growing into and acting like fathers and mothers in the church. So she says, the question of how to honor Christ through my teaching gift revolves around the issue of whether I'm acting like a church father or a church mother. Am I doing something that is or will likely be understood as setting doctrinal and spiritual direction for the entire church family? She would say that if it is, then that's something I should avoid. She says, arguably, because I am a gifted teacher, I could do a better job of interpreting the Bible and delivering the sermon than many church fathers do. But that would miss the point. She says it's not about competence or skill. God created the family, and in the family, men are supposed to be the dads and women are supposed to be the moms. It's not a question of who is better at it or more gifted, because male and female roles are neither identical nor interchangeable. So she draws the distinction there and says that men need to be acting as fathers and women as mothers. And we need to note that not all men are in a place of authority in the church, and no one's being called, no, no woman is being called to submit to everything that a man says just because he's within these four walls. The idea is that those who are called into leadership, which we'll talk about next week in chapter three, are called and tested for their qualities to make sure that as they're leading, they're reflecting what a church father would look like. So before we come to verse 13, let's understand that God has established an order for teaching and authority. Women aren't permitted to lead in this role, but their role of displaying godliness through good works that we talked about in the last section, it has a million different expressions in the life of the church and in her everyday life as well. So while this is one thing that women are not permitted in the New Testament, there are a plethora of things that women are called to in ministry outside of it. We should also add that elder authority over the whole church, sorry, that elder authority that the whole church, men and women are to submit to, is subject to the authority of God himself, above all. And we'll see those qualifications that God sets out for elder authority in chapter 3 next week. So women are excluded from this, but not disqualified. Men are included, but they may be disqualified from leadership. So for now, let me ask you, women and men, are you content to trust Christ for the way authority in his church works? Because that's the, the heart issue that we need to get at with this passage. Last section, verses 13 through 15 foundation of creation and the gospel. Read along with me again, if you would, please, starting at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So like other connecting words that we've seen today with likewise and I desire then, we have another one here, which is four in verse 13. It shows that Paul is simply giving his reason for the standard on authority and teaching in the church. So why is it that authority and teaching in the church works this way? Paul says it's because Adam was formed first. That doesn't imply superiority. He's not saying Adam was better than Eve because he crossed the finish line first. It wasn't a race to see who would be created. In fact, Adam and Eve had no say in their creation, did they? Paul appeals all the way back to Genesis 
and says, you know, the reason why authority in the church should work this way is because Adam was formed first. And that would have been understood by his listeners as a matter of firstborn responsibility. So what we see in the Old Testament and carrying into the New Testament as well is that the firstborn son bears a special responsibility in his family to carry on the family name, to take care of the family business, to, in one sense, stand as a leader amongst his brothers and sisters. And Paul says this is essentially what Adam is. He appeals to that to reinforce his point. So this matches with why Eve was created in Genesis 2 as well. Because Eve came in as a suitable helper. You remember that the problem in creation was God had made everything and he saw everything was good until he came to the fact of Adam's being alone. It's the only time that God says something was not good. And so Eve comes as God's solution to that one thing in his good creation that wasn't good. And she comes as a helper. Kevin DeYoung says um, that this ordering is significant because it shows Adam's position as the one who names, tames, and protects the garden and the animals in it. And then it shows Eve's position as the one who nurtures, helps, and supports. So Paul roots his understanding of male leadership in church authority in the creation model. And that's another thing. To the argument that this model that Paul is giving in 1 Timothy 2 was only for one time, we really can't accept that because Paul doesn't ground it in Ephesus. He grounds it in Eden. And it was there that the cunning serpent showed up, the original false teacher. And the teaching not only involved questioning God's plan when he said, did God really say this? But it also involved bypassing the order of God's authority. John Stott says, Eve's part in the fall was not gullibility. It wasn't that she was being dumb, but that she took improper initiative. See, the serpent didn't go to Adam for the test. Adam was the leader of that family. Instead, he went to the one who was called to follow and basically tempted her to take improper initiative, to take the stance of a leader and the action of it. So when we come to verse 15, which should probably be the hardest part of this whole passage, we've got the idea that, okay, there's the fall, and Paul doesn't place all of the blame for the fall on Eve. You can go through the rest of his letters, you know, particularly the book of Romans, where he talks about, and in 1 Corinthians, where it says that in Adam all die. Adam is the one who carries the guilt and passes it on to all of his descendants after him. But then verse 15 comes in with perhaps the strangest thing and the hardest thing for us to grapple with. Look again at verse 15. So he's established everything in Eden, and then he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now we might on a surface level understand this as saying that a woman is saved from sin by having babies. And that is inconsistent with the rest of what Paul says about salvation. Paul is the one who said that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not in anything that we do. So what is he talking about here? And man, we're out of time. Let's just go ahead and pray. And, just kidding. 
Seriously, this is really the hardest part of the passage. But when we look at the word saved, we can also see in the rest of the New Testament that the word saved and salvation is used in variation. So just for one example, since we've already quoted or read from Philippians this morning, think about Philippians 2.12. Because it's there that Paul says to the church that they should work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Now, does that mean, and we studied Philippians you know, almost five years ago now, but when Paul says work out your salvation, he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work it out. He, he's, I think the helpful illustration is to think about going to the gym with the muscles that you have and working them out. You're not gaining new muscles. You're, you're working out the muscles that you have. Work out the salvation that you have. And how are we to do that? We, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling with seriousness. The salvation that we already have. So we can see salvation and being saved used in slight variation here and there. And it makes sense here if we, if we believe Paul's going to be consistent with his own theology. It makes sense that what Paul isn't saying is, hey, have babies and you'll get to go to heaven. We don't save ourselves. Our roles don't save ourselves. Submitting to authority doesn't save us. Christ alone is the one who saves us. Being saved through childbearing, though, is interesting in this context because he's just finished saying that men alone can hold authoritative teaching positions in the church. Well, who is it who can bear children? I know this is a radical thing to say in 2024. Only women can bear children. So after just talking about something exclusive, he moves to something else exclusive. And in that exclusive role, a woman is able to work out her salvation, to to live in the salvation that she has in Christ alone. And this isn't even to say that every woman is going to have children. That's not necessary, but it becomes a picture for us to understand that there are things that men can do and things that women can do. And if we are to live in the household of faith together and to live under the mutual salvation we have in Christ, we ought to act out the roles that we've been put in. Are you tracking with me on that? Okay. The call is to glorify Christ wherever he has you. Not all women bear children, not all men lead the church, but glorify Christ where he's placed you. Behave in line with God's word in his household. It's the place where character transformation yields submission to godly authority and joy in the roles that Christ has won for us at the cross. I don't know if you've ever had this moment of realizing you were good at something. Or realizing, like, this is what God's made me for. This is the job that I have. This is where I really fit. This is where, you know, what I like to do and what I can do meet together. And I find a sense of fulfillment in that. Maybe you've had that feeling or maybe you haven't. Maybe a better illustration is just understanding when you're putting together a piece of furniture and looking at the instructions that that there are certain pieces that go in certain spots and and that uh, there's only one way to assemble the piece of furniture properly as designed by the Creator. But that's what Paul is calling his church to in Ephesus, and that's what God is calling us to today as well, to embrace the roles we have. 
And I would expand it beyond just being a man or being a woman, but being a citizen in Lima, being a father, a mother, being a son or a daughter or a friend or whatever your occupation is. Embracing the role that God has placed you in as an opportunity to bring him glory. And when we embrace the roles that we have, that that God has given us, we actually find a deep-rooted fulfillment as we further align ourselves with his will. There are different roles. We're called to different things. Equal, of course, but different. And that is what's glorious about the church. God is able to put all of us together into the body of Christ and proclaim the good news of Christ effectively and draw others to him. The church is the place, again, where character transformation yields submission to godly authority and joy in the roles that Christ has won for us at the cross. Embrace the roles that God has placed you in. Men and women, boys and girls, are called to yield to Christ's rule as the ultimate head of the household. So at Crosspoint, we need to cast aside any discontentment with where God has us today and understand that our Heavenly Father has called us for His purposes and not for our own, and that we can see that most clearly in Christ. Again, Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, because it's yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That was the role that God the Father called him to. A servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why is it that we should embrace the roles that we have in the church? Because Christ embraced his role even to death on the cross. His role of savior to be despised and rejected and executed for his enemies to make them his friends, to bring them into his household. Paul continues, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If, church, it was Christ's response to the role his father set him in, to be humble, to become a servant, is there anything he can't call us to today? Is there anything that is too low for us? Is there anything that is too hard or too difficult? Uh, go all the way back up to the beginning of our passage. Because men, we're called to lift holy hands in prayer. We go, oh, I'm not really a prayer. I'm more, of, I'm more interested in you know, putting stuff together and making stuff happen. We're glad that you like putting things together and making stuff happen. But we need men to lift holy hands in prayer, to seek the will of God and align their hearts with him. That's hard. It's not just women who are being called to something to submit, but men also to submit to Christ. Can we do that? No, not on our own. Our tendency, our desire is for our own plan, our roles. I'll define. I'll tell you what I want to be when I grow up. Christ has something far better than what we can decide for ourselves. So let's embrace that. Let's look at the week ahead. Look at our days ahead. Look at our life in the church and consider, am I embracing the role that I have 
as a man, as a woman, as an elder, as a teacher, as a Sunday school teacher, or whatever it may be. Let's seek him for his glory. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our good Father, this morning we thank you for your faithfulness to call us, to equip us, to prepare us, and to make us effective for your kingdom. All those things are done simply by Christ in us. There is nothing of us in ourselves that would merit our standing up and saying, but hey, wait a second, I don't really like how you said that. I would like it to be this way instead. Lord, would you help us to embrace the roles you have for us so that your mission could continue, so we could call the lost to faith in Christ, so that your son would receive the glory that he is so due. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.